Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast, Season 6, Episode 1. So I always tell young coaches, get as much experience as you can, intern on as many people as you can, read everything you can, and then start to develop your coaching philosophy or principles around that. This is the NSCA's Coaching Podcast, where we talk to strength and conditioning coaches about what you really need to know, but probably didn't learn in school. There's strength and conditioning, and then there's everything else. Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast. I'm Eric McMahon. Today, we're joined by Angelo Gingerelli, a strength and conditioning coach for Olympic sports at Seton Hall University. Angelo also teaches some PE electives as an adjunct professor, and he's been in the field for a number of years. Angelo, welcome. Thanks for having me, Eric. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm excited to get to know you today. Uh, We've been going back and forth a little bit on a few things, and it's just always great to connect with a with a coach in the profession and uh here's a chance just to tell your story to all our listeners awesome man really looking forward to it so uh tell us about your background in the field and how you got started okay so i I was in high school at the jersey shore in the 90s and i was super lucky i went to a public high school that had a strength and conditioning coach on the staff which is a phys ed teacher and a strength coach and we had at the time it was a great weight room it's obviously been outdated from 30 years ago it was great for the time and he was just a super big influence on my life his name was ron devito we still talk about once a month today um, and I just kind of decided, I think everybody else, I started lifting weights in high school to get better at sports, like wrestling, track, baseball, whatever. And I just really liked the weight room. I just loved being in there. I like training, I like pushing myself the way we all do it. Probably all you're listening to the podcast, like, like training. And then I decided right as I was graduating, I wanted to pursue something in that, in that realm, right? And right about then, the University of Delaware had started a, a major of exercise science with a concentration in strength and conditioning. And we're one of the first schools in the country to do that in the, in the mid to late 90s. So it just kind of made a perfect fit that it was a school I wanted to go to. They had a major I really wanted to, uh, to pursue. And I got down there and started interning in the weight room my freshman year. I just started right off the bat. I was 19 years old and just started kind of learning the lingo and learning the profession. Uh, Tony Decker was the strength coach there, another super big influence on my career. And then I gra- my graduating class was the first group of students that had that exercise science, uh, strength and conditioning concentration on their diploma. And then I kind of went out from there. My last thing at University of Delaware was a internship at NC State with Charles Stevenson. Worked with him for a summer. Right from there, I was lucky enough to get a graduate assistantship at Virginia Tech for two years, finished up my master's degree in health promotions. And then another kind of just stroke of luck as my internship ended, as my GA position ended and I graduated from Virginia Tech, a full-time position opened up at NC State, which I got there. So I started my first full-time job was down at NC State. I did one year with the Pittsburgh Pirates in 2005. And then as that wound up, I got to Seton Hall in 2005. And I've been there 17 years. As everybody knows, that's an eternity in strength and conditioning years. Um, it's almost like dog years, right? Like every one year in our field, like seven years in a regular job. But uh, I found I, I, I found a good spot for myself, man. I always tell people I got super lucky in that I grew up a Seton Hall fan. I had a Seton Hall starter jacket when I was in 10th grade. Uh, I remember watching them go to the NCAA tournaments as a little kid. And my family's in New Jersey. I love living in New Jersey. And I love, you know, my, my, my dad comes to the games. It's just, it's a really good time. I take my, now my daughter comes to the games with me. There's kind of a, a generational Seton Hall fan. It's really kind of cool to be a part of something that I grew up watching on TV. And now for close to two decades, got to be, you know, some, some part of our department's success. Yeah, a lot of, uh, a lot of coaches, 
really go anywhere and everywhere to pursue opportunities in this profession. And you've been really fortunate that you've been able to stay close to home and connected around the Northeast and just uh, build a career there. If you would share a little bit about the Seton Hall program, what do you know, what do you really like about it? How do you guys structure your department and just some of the teams you work with? Okay, great, great question. So we have three people on the strength and conditioning staff that are all full-time uh, one person works with men's basketball and women's soccer, and he's really he's not a part of the basketball staff, but he goes to just about everything. He's at every practice, every warm up, every shoot around, travels with the team. If he's on the road with the, with the men, I'll take over women's soccer that day, whatever it might be. We have to cover for each other. We have another person on staff that covers women's basketball and men's soccer, kind of the same thing. She does everything with women's basketball, on the road, meal planning, that kind of stuff. And then when they're on the road, I kind of stay back and cover the soccer teams. One thing we've done really good since this particular staff has been in place is we all work together and help each other out a ton, right? And we all write our programs using the same language, same terminology. Um, for example, on Friday, he's going to be gone with women's soccer. We've already gone over the workout, so I'm ready to implement it seamlessly on Friday when he's on the road. Uh, we have 6 a.m. baseball lifts. We have 40 baseball guys right now, right? Uh, the pitcher's doing one thing, position guy's doing another thing. Pitchers are training based on their day and their rotation. And both of those other people on our staff are invaluable helping me make that work, right? Because I'm one guy, there's 40 of them. Might be in a couple different locations. Guys are doing different things and we really work together well. We don't have any grad assistance, mainly because CNL doesn't offer any grad degree that would really help a strength coach out in your field, right? We have a huge business school, a couple other majors we're kind of known for, but we bring in, we try to bring in between two and four interns every semester. Um, and like anybody in the profession knows that can be hit and miss, right? You get interns sometimes that step in day one and they're an asset to the room, asset to the staff immediately. Then you get some kids, you got to drag along a little bit, kind of get them up to speed to be a help. And then you get some kids that it's, it's not for them. And they learn that during the internship. And I think that's fine. I think as long as you're coming in every day and trying to learn and realize this might not be the career you want to pursue, that's a valuable lesson too, right? Um, but I try to keep in touch. I do, I do one thing I think is pretty cool. I started a couple of years ago with our interns. We don't have really a set spell of internship program, but I put every intern that's interested into a group me and we keep in touch that way for about 50 kids in there now. It's kind of like if a position opens, I'll post that up in there so they can apply to it. If I you know, produce an article or a book or something like that, I'll post it in there. And we kind of all stayed in touch and communicated for probably since 2015 or 16, we started that. And it's really, you know, it's, it's really been a good thing for everybody involved. I think so much of our profession is based on getting an internship and making some connections, but I don't think we, we, we spend enough time teaching young coaches. You have to nurture those connections, right? Like going up and introducing somebody at a conference, that's a great thing, but what do you do next? Is there a follow-up email? Do you try to, like, what are you doing when that internship is over? Um, and I think one thing I've done pretty good is try to keep everybody that I've had, I think, some kind of influence on connected, communicating with each other and communicating with me pretty often. Yeah, I think it's um, really interesting, you know, the staff dynamic, you go from one university to the next and you just see things can run a lot differently. You know, you one program doesn't always work at another institution. Uh, how you staff that program, whether it be interns, GAs, full-time assistants. Uh, and one thing I think is really interesting is that the NSCA was founded by a group of college coaches that, that came together and tried to be more organized. And so it's our founding audience, but it's also probably our most diverse and broad audience in that you just have high resource programs, low resource programs, 
power five major universities, all the way down to NAIA or division three schools that some have resources and, and endowments and some don't. I think it's interesting hearing about staff dynamic and how things run. It sounds like you, you've been there for a number of years. It sounds like you have some great collaboration going on with your staffs and you really try to make the most of it with your, uh, with your interns. If you would speak to how you've seen the field evolve over your time at Seton Hall, you know, what are some of the changes in you in the profession that you see uh, now from when you first started and what's some of the momentum that you see building today? Okay. I think if you go back to, I kind of got in the very late nineties, early two thousands, so close, you know, 20 plus years ago at this point. And I think, and this is from coming from a powerlifting, Olympic lifting background. I think so much of that error was on the idea of athletes need to be stronger and you got to do that by doing the, the main lifts, squat, bench, clean, deadlifts, as heavy as you possibly can, get everybody great at those lifts and get as strong as possible on the platform or in the squat rack, right? And that was kind of the era of everybody had a record board. Everybody would brag this football team has five guys that could bench press 405, whatever it might be. Um, and I think what we saw as a profession, a lot of times that didn't translate onto the field, right? You had your weight room all-stars that weren't necessarily your all-conference draft pick type guys, right? Or, or men or women, to, to correct myself. And so I think we, we saw kind of the pendulum swing the other way into everything being so quote-unquote functional and athletic. And now all of a sudden, it doesn't matter how much you could squat, but it matters how deep you could squat and how high you could jump with a bar on your back and that kind of stuff. And now I think we're in a pretty good spot where it's kind of in the middle, right? I think most strength coaches realize you have to develop a strength base to do anything productive in high-level sports, right? But at the same time, let's say, for example, you're at a 400-pound squatter. At that point, does it make more sense of more time and effort to turn that person into a 500-pound squatter or a 400-pound squatter with great mobility, great flexibility, great explosive muscle fiber types, um, good good landing mechanics. And I think the one thing in college that's, that's kind of different than the private sector and even the, the pro sector, really, we're always limited by time. We're always playing beat the clock. We only have so many hours a week or a semester, whatever period of time we want to look at to train our student athletes. So you got to look at, I always look at it as, if I had 20 hours a week with these kids, I would do all of this stuff. Let's cut that in half, cut cut the fluff off, then cut that in half again. And that's probably what I'm really looking at, right? So you really got to get down to this, in my opinion, decide what is the most important thing you want to get out of every session and most important thing you want to get out of every training block, cycle, semester, however you look at it, and make sure you get that in in the allotted time you're given by the NCAA and the head coaches. And then if you have extra time, extra stuff, kind of put other stuff on top of that. You know what I mean? I think every, the other thing I realized too is different. You said every staff is different. Every school is different. That's a hundred percent true, right? If you listen to this podcast, you can tell us people with you know 16 strength coaches on one staff, the schools where one guy or girl does the whole thing. Um, but teams are different, right? I do our baseball team in the Northeast is one demographic of player. Now they're still 18 to 22 year olds, but our soccer guys are a completely different demographic and they have to be addressed differently. Swimmers are a different demographic and be addressed differently. And I think that's one thing that a young coach could really learn. Everybody wants to work with football and men's basketball, right? That's kind of the, the brass ring at the college level. I completely understand that. But I think if you get a chance to intern and see what a swimming session looks like or what a cross country workout looks like, what a baseball pitching workout looks like. I think you should take every opportunity to learn and take notes and ask questions about that too, because it's a different, it, you know, we're all human beings. Our bodies aren't that different, but if you're going to optimize training for, let's say a, 
a first baseman and a distance swimmer, those programs are going to look very different, right? So how do you do that? And how do you make that work for all of the athletes you deal with? You know, speak to some of the ways you've seen this evolve, but speak to some of the ways that you've stayed current in the field over the, over the years, you know, books, resources, you know, what are some of the pivotal resources that have driven your thinking? I mean, I'm one of the few people in my age group that I think we live in an awesome time as far as everybody our age wants to hate social media. You know, everybody, influencers are trash and it's all garbage. In reality, there's as much good stuff on the internet available right now as there's been in the entire history of published books, right? It's it's super simple. It's all free. I always joke around with other coaches in our building. I'm like, if you're screaming that you hate Instagram now, 500 years ago, you were the person screaming you hated books and they were fat and not going to last, right? <laughs> so I know it's kind of funny, but Instagram, YouTube, all that stuff, eBooks, everyone will look at it. Now, listen, there's some stuff out there that's that's dangerous, terrible. People are going to get hurt, all that. There's also good information out there, right? And I think where we, where, we, where we need to do a little bit better as a profession is probably instilling our young coaches, our intern level coaches with a good foundation of how the body works, anatomy and physiology, and what is is good, and then you can go out and sift through what's good out there, right? Um, Because if you have no basis for knowledge, no basis of how the body works, you look at an Instagram account, you look at a YouTube video, you look at a muscle and fitness type article, and you think that's the gospel, right? When in reality, maybe it's trash, maybe there's nothing good on there, or in reality, maybe there's something good you can pull out of that article and apply to what you already know and make your programming better that way. So I think that the, the best stuff out there right now, we, we live in a weird time too, like everything is moving so fast, right? Um, I, I just published a book myself, it was a, a three-year process, because mainly because of COVID, it would have been a two-year process without it, right? So a book that comes out in 2022, someone wrote that in 2018 or 2019, right? That's already, I'm not going to say it's outdated and old, there's probably some great information in there, but there's already newer stuff being put out every day online. So I think if you're going to be a strength coach, to some extent, you got to be out there and reading what's what's out there. Another joke I always make that, that gets a laugh sometimes, I think knowing the science and knowing anatomy and physiology and how the body works is super important. But as a strength coach at the college level for almost 20 years, I've never had a student athlete come to my office and ask me to explain the, slide, the sliding filament of muscle contraction, right? The sliding filament theory or the Krebs cycle or any of that stuff, right? What they ask you about is what's current. So I think to some extent, if you're going to connect to the players, you have to know what's going on in the bigger fitness industry. And if there's a reason you don't like one of those things that are popular, be able to explain why you don't like it, right? And have a basis for why you don't like it, as opposed to just being the old curmudgeon, everything new is bad, everything old is good. Because I find student athletes, just college kids, they don't tune that person out real quick. But if you speak the same language as them and know what's going on in the bigger, the bigger fitness unit, just college strength and conditioning, um, those are the questions you're going to get asked day to day. Yeah, we've seen this shift in 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 the field, and I'm in digging into your background. You know, I saw you had a powerlifting and Olympic lifting uh, background for yourself. And what I'm curious about is kind of going back on your answer of how the field has evolved from more of those foundational uh, that powerlifting focus to yeah, just some of the more uh, functional or isolateral type training we look at today how important is powerlifting and olympic lifting foundations within the strength and conditioning scope for your athletes and specifically to some of the athletes that maybe aren't in those ideal body types for those sports okay i think 
sweeping generalization, right? What I teach my classes is particularly the power lifts, your bench press, your squat, and your deadlift or deadlift variation, right? Those are the foundation of the house you're going to build in the weight room. If you can't do those reasonably well, anything else is going to be really hard. I think we all kind of agree on that, right? Most mm -hmm. strength coaches are doing some kind of squatting, some kind of bench pressing or pressing, and some kind of kind of deadlift type movement, whether it be a trap bar or an RDL, whatever it might be. So I think if we're going to try to build a house on a shaky foundation, it's going to be a real shaky house. So we got to get good at those movements. Um, as far as Olympic lifting, as someone who came from a background of, of always thinking that was super important, as I've kind of gotten older and kind of seen things evolve, my attitude on that now is that if you have an athlete that's really good at your squat, your bench, and your deadlift, and you want to train some explosiveness, teaching a clean, teaching a snatch might be a great way to do it, but you got to look at that time component too, right? So the example I always give people is if you watch high-level, world-class Olympic weightlifting, those men and women dedicate their lives to learning those movements and those techniques and being great at them, right? They're the best in the world and their technique breaks down sometimes, right? They get injured on the platform sometimes. So now if we're going to take a young athlete that's a soccer player, swimmer, baseball player, whatever it might be, and expect them to do a perfect clean or perfect snatch while they're playing a sport, while they're doing aerobic conditioning, while they're probably not sleeping, eating, drinking properly because they're college students, and potentially they're not super into learning what you're trying to teach them, does that get dangerous real quick? Absolutely. So what I've kind of, kind of figured out recently is we could take a lot of time teaching a clean, or we can maybe do some back squat superset or box jumps, or we can maybe look at some things differently and maybe don't, not dumb, but simplify the technique down a little bit, right? and get the most out of our time and not kill a ton of time teaching these very complicated multi-joint movements that to be quite frankly, not everybody's gonna be great at, right? If everybody's 5'8", 165, we can probably get everybody great at Olympic lifts, right? But if you got a basketball team and you got a guy that's 6'11", 210, that person might not have the body type to ever really get good at that. So you're better off attacking that, you know, skinning that cat in a different direction and maybe doing some supersets, some stuff like that, some plyo work, med ball work, box jump, stuff like that to the explosiveness and taking that time and put maybe doing some hypertrophy or put some muscle mass type work on that guy or girl because that's what their body type demands. And I think that's an interesting thing too, that the, 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 the athlete we have today at the college level is for the most part, better educated about their own body than ever before because of the proliferation of your private sector training facilities, right? You have, there was probably a point when I, when I went to college, if the strength coach said everybody's doing workout X, most people didn't know enough to, to question it, right? Now that, that guy or girl, you were in a weight room at 18 year old freshman in college, they may have already met with or trained with three or four strength coaches, personal trainers, athletic coach, whatever, athletic performance people, whatever you want to call us, um, and they've been told for the last couple of years, you have tight Achilles, so you have to address that. Your thoracic mobility is limited, limited make sure you address that. And I, I know, I think the, the, the kind of the breakdown in our profession is we have kids that go see multiple different practitioners as they're growing up. Then they go to college, might deal with a completely different philosophy of training, completely different way to view the, the body. Then if they're lucky enough to play beyond college, that's another ballgame there, right? Um, I'm not saying at all, I think we should adopt like the Eastern block method from the 80s and 90s, or we develop kids from the, the cradle to the grave to be athletes. I mean, that, that's the American way at all. But I do think there's some uniformity in the way we trained and more of a progression um, not everybody, I think some athletes would do better by that as opposed to being confused by meeting with so many different personal trainers, physical therapists, athletic trainers, um, and having their head just full of so many different things by the time they meet their college strength coach. 
That being said, the, the, the positive side is a lot of kids I deal with are really good at the basic stuff the day I meet them because they went to those places when they were younger, might have had a good high school strength coach, um, and they can squat, they can lunge, they can pull up, they can push up, and it makes my job a lot easier, right? Um, I think to some extent, some of the people in the private sector and high school strength coaches have become so good at their job, people like me at the college level have to get, have to almost sell ourselves more because they were committed to one kind of training, right? And I, I, I will, I'll let, you know, in the last 10 years, no one's ever come to me being, I, I come at it like I'm, I'm a friend, like, here's what you're doing before, here's what we're going to do here. It's great you did that stuff before. My job is to help you get better, right? Um, the, the blustery fire, fire and brimstone strength coach in everybody's face, there's a time for that, right? But there's also a time for, if you got some questions about the workout, come in the office and we'll talk about it, right? There's a time for, it's really cool, you're 18, you can do all this stuff, but if you want to play, and that got you to C and all to the Big East, but if you want to get, get drafted and play and get paid to play beyond this, I got some ideas that can help you. Let's sit down and talk about it. And I think that's one thing that a lot of strength coaches are, are I think if you're going to be in this game for a long time, you have to get good at that side of it, right? I think the X's and O's, the percentages, the programming, your sets, reps are incredibly important. But if you can't convey that to your athletes, why it's important and why you need 100% effort this day, then we're going to take a recovery day, why I need you well rested this day. Um, you're never going to get the most out of your athletes or your program or your teams because so much of what we do, in my opinion, is interpersonal relationships and being somewhat of a salesman or saleswoman of why I need you to give me a ton of effort on this thing I'm asking you to do. And I understand why that's hard. I understand why it's a lot to ask of somebody, right? I'm going up to a 17-year-old kid, maybe he hasn't seen his parents in a couple months. He's in school. He might have a job. He's got coaches yelling at him nonstop. He's nervous about making a team. He might be dealing with an injury. And now I'm saying, let's put two plates on the bar and squat, whatever it is. Um, so I think to some extent, you got to really develop those relationships and have the players trust you. And they got to know, I think they got to know you're on their side. That's one thing I think I do really well. Like I'm intense when we're in a workout, we need to be intense. Um, I will joke around and laugh with our guys and girls as much as anybody else on campus. But I think they all know at the end of the day, they could come in the office, pull me to the side, shoot me an email. And if they have a real question they need help with, I'll do anything I can to help them. Right. And then that goes a long way that my relationship is not just a business relationship. We're giving you a scholarship to play, but I want more than anything else. You to walk out of here four years after the day I met you a better man or woman than you were a boy or a girl when I met you four years ago. Um, and that's where it really we get. It's kind of a cliche, but as I get older, that's where I get the biggest satisfaction going to alumni events, getting emails, getting texts. People are still training. They're having families. They're being successful in their career. And they tell me I was a part of that. And that's really amazing. And that, that's the most humbling thing I've been a part of probably as an adult. Um, and that's going to somebody who you know, has been part of as staff that have won Big East championships and been the NCAA tournament. All that's great. It's phenomenal. But I think the, the weight room and the impact we have on people's lives is really phenomenal as well. Yeah, I mean, a lot of great perspective on just growth of the private sector and how that has influenced college athletics and just the athletes you get at 18 years old. It used to be that's when strength and conditioning started, you know, when you got the the first year as a student athlete on campus. But uh, it's not always the case anymore, especially with some of the uh, elite private uh, programs out there that athletes are getting recruited from. One thing I want to ask is COVID-19 has obviously impacted uh, 
all of us in college programs, especially with how training sessions and policies are going in place, how did it affect you at, at Seton Hall? Okay, so the first year of COVID, which is about two years ago now, we shut down, like we shut everything down spring sport-wise and summer-wise. The facility was just pretty much closed, right? When we got back in fall of 2020, we had a 19-person cap on how many people come in the weight room at one time, right? So we had 19 stations people could train at. They were about 10 feet apart. You know, CDC, CDC was saying six feet. We separated them even more. Um, and we had the entire department doing the same workout. So every hour, 19 people would come in the room and you would have everything you needed within a, about a 10 foot radius around your body. And you would do the same workout. We change it month to month. Right. Um, and it worked. It, it worked well with the, the, the conditions we had. Right. The people got bigger, stronger. It, people felt better because they, they went from not training at all during the first part of quarantine to actually training again, which was good. Coaching wise, it was it was really rough. The strength coaches out there will feel me on this. That like, for example, 19 kids in the weight room sounds like a lot, right? But now when you got 60 swimmers, instead of one hour of your day, that's three, it's a three hour block of swimming, right? It was a two hour block every day for baseball. I think it was three for softball, whatever it might be. So the day was just really exhausting. It was every hour, 19 kids come in, every hour, 19 kids leave, and then completely sanitizing the room every hour, right? Um, so it was, just, it was, it was necessary. It was a lot of work. Um, but it worked reasonably well for the, the world we were in at that time, right? This year we came back for 2021 and we're, we're wearing masks in the weight room, obviously, because we're indoors. Um, we're allowed to have full teams in again, which is definitely good. And now we're doing a little more, a lot more team specific training because now when it's, it's the swimmers, it's just the swimmers. It's baseball, it's just baseball. And we can circulate around the room a little bit better, spot each other, stuff like that. So things have gotten better. Um, we're still trying to keep teams mixing to a minimum with the idea that if one person has COVID, trying to expose them to as, as few people as possible. And then our tra athletic trainer was doing a phenomenal job of testing and contact tracing and getting people out of the population as soon as they can to keep everybody else safe. Um, it's just, it's, it's been an incredible year of somebody who I was here for about 15 years before COVID doing things one way and getting, trying to get better every year, making small changes, doing things different, but to go to a completely 180 shift in the way you train for the last two years has really been something else. The one thing I want to give that the fitness community, a lot of props on, I think when something like this happens, you see the best and the worst of people, right? I think the worst our field did was when people wanted equipment, suppliers doubled and tripled prices, Right. You saw blood and you went for more blood like a shark. If you want a squat rack in your garage and now instead of five hundred dollars, it's two thousand dollars and we can't deliver it for six months. I didn't, I didn't really think that was a good way to handle things. Right. But I understand it's a business the way the world goes around. But I think if you were a fitness influencer and you were posting free workouts and showing people how to train and burn calories and get better in their house, which, which all these people did on Instagram and, and uh, TikTok and YouTube for the last year, I got to take my hat off to that, man. I think you did a great job. And I understand you're marketing yourself and trying to sign clients, stuff like that. But I think as a community, we did a really good job online of showing people you don't need a squat rack and a woodweight treadmill and 75 pound kettlebells to get a workout in, right? If you got a backpack and some sneakers and a couple gallons of milk, you can get something in and not put on the quarantine 15 and be out of shape. And I mean, in my opinion, the world's been so crazy the last two years, being out of shape should not be another thing you have to worry about, right? Um, and I think I, I, we have a very nice weight room here. We have powerlift equipment. We got Kaisers, we got all this stuff that costs a ton of money and it's great. It, the tools are great. 
But if you come, if I was joking around with the kids, if you come back to campus out of shape after a break, that's completely your fault. You need nothing to, to run, to do a dynamic warm up, to do body weight stuff, you go to a park and do pull ups. Um, so I, I always, I always get on them that if you're out of shape after the summer, it's only your fault. Not having access to a facility is not an excuse. And in my opinion, during COVID, not having access to the gym is not a reason to become overweight, more out of shape, honestly, more at risk for COVID complications in those cases. Um, and then I've hit the host of things that go along with that high blood pressure, hypertension, obesity, and all that stuff. So I think the, the community did a pretty good job of showing people that you don't need a ton of equipment to stay in great shape. Um, and now I'm happy for everybody that owns a business that the world's opening back up. We can get out there and, and get back in the gym and train again. Angelo, you've done some teaching uh, as part of some PE electives on campus. And not every strength and conditioning coach has the opportunity to do that on campus, but, but many do. Speak to the value of having some teaching responsibilities outside of your normal coaching duties just for you and just uh, what you know, how you, how you view that and how you've pursued that throughout your career. Great. Okay. So my teaching background is, is a little strange. Um, our, our baseball coach right now, his father was a previous baseball coach and he's a, they're, they're a legend in New Jersey baseball history. There's the Shepard family. So Rob Shepard, our coach right now, probably, probably one of the best coaching relationships I've ever had as far as strength coach and head coach. We get along great. I've learned a ton from him. I hope he's learned something from me along the way. But before him, his dad was the head coach and his dad was retired and teaching classes when I first got here. And then he had some health complications and they needed someone to teach his class right away. Right. And I was the only person in the building that had a master's degree related to education that could take over. So with about two days notice, I took his syllabus and started teaching. But I think the lesson for, for young coaches out there is. You know, a lot, we argue a lot the value of a master's degree, right? You have to have it, but we view it more as kind of checking a box on a resume than getting a lot from it a lot of time in the coaching profession. And I can tell you straight up and down, having that master's in, in health promotions and MED in education led to me teaching my first class. It was the only person that could do it. And it's led to tens of thousands of dollars in revenue over the last decade by being able to teach these classes in adjunct. So I think one thing we can all agree on, strength coaches are not compensated nearly enough for number one, the amount of time they put in, number two, the amount of education we demand from them, and number three, how much they just, just work and have to get in the field as intern, GA, part-time coach, full-time coach, and there's only a handful of us making any money at the very top of the spectrum. I don't consider myself in that at all. Um, so you got to supplement your income one way or the other. So teaching is a great way to do that, right? The other thing I learned right away in the classroom, literally the first month or two when I was doing this back in about 2010 or 2011, the lack of knowledge about the human body by your student athletes and your general population students is astounding. You cannot imagine how many people, and I'm dealing with it, the, sm the smartest kids come to Seton Hall, right? One of the better colleges in the Northeast. We're talking seniors in college have no idea what a macronutrient is, no idea what a calorie is, no idea what a concentric muscle contraction is. So to some extent, and I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I think high school teachers, public school teachers do a great job, private school teachers, shout out to them. But we're graduating kids out of our education system that know nothing about the human body. And then we wonder why the obesity rate is what it is by the time people are 30, right? We wonder why so many adults are suffering from high blood pressure, hypertension, sleep apnea, all the things that go along with obesity. And I got in that classroom, literally the first class I had, I'm like, oh, wait, this isn't common knowledge. And I feel a lot of times the strength coaches, we take for granted what we know, right? Well, the rest of the world doesn't know that. And I think one thing we could probably get better at as a profession is, 
is teaching more people that stuff, right? Um, now, I'm not naive. I don't think if we, if we improved high school health, we'd just become healthier as a country. There's a million factors out there that, 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 that contribute to why everyone's overweight, why people choose not to be active, why our cardiovascular health is an all-time low. But I do think we could just need to do a better job across the board of educating Americans and teaching them that being active, eating a reasonable diet, drinking enough water, sleeping enough, those kind of things are super important. Um, and just learn that right away. The other thing that hit me real quick was I think I, have, I do a pretty good job of impacting our student athletes. I think my relationships are great. I think I teach them a lot. I think I, I, I put a lot of myself and effort into teaching them things that are going to take the rest of their life. Um, when you're teaching, you get to do that to some more people, right? It's not just the student athletes, it's the general population kids. And if, for example, if you're doing with a student athlete, they're, they're active, they might not love training, but they understand at least a little bit the value of daily physical activity, right? If you deal with a, a college senior that's never played sports, never been active, you're, you're almost speaking a different language, right? Um, I think learning that language is valuable and being able to communicate that these things are important to long-term health. To people that may have never been told that before is super important. The other thing I think the cliche is, if you want to, if you want to learn something, teach it to somebody else. And I can honestly say that what I've learned in the classroom I've learned like the back, what I've taught in the classroom, I've learned like the back of my hand, right? In strength and conditioning, you get, everybody understands the NSCA textbook the day they take the test, right? They might be 22. Put them, in, put them in front of that test again in their 30s or 40s, a lot of them can't pass it because you're not doing that stuff every day. Is that fair? Um, we're not doing that science every day. But I think when you put yourself in that classroom setting, that academic setting, and force yourself to stay up to date with what's going on, keep reinforcing the physiology and the nutrition and that stuff, you just, it keeps you sharp. It's just the same way as if, you know, if you work on your flexibility every day, if you don't ever get inflexible, you're in a much better spot than if you got inflexible and got to get back into it, right? Same thing in the classroom. If you let that academic stuff slide and forget it after you take the certification exam, you can't be super surprised when you're in your 30s and coaching in your 20s are knowing more than you, doing better than you, getting getting better jobs in some cases because you chose not to, to keep your foot on the gas and stay abreast of what's going on in the industry and on the academic and research side of things. So I, I was on a podcast recently. I kind of I kind of agree with this. Is that I think as a coach, there's three things you got to pull for. Right. One is the research. And the, the scientific clinical side of what's going on. And the NSCA does a great job putting that info out there and being kind of the cutting edge or part of the cutting edge of what's going on with the human body and how to train it differently, right? The second thing is your experience. And that's are you, are you, how many teams have you trained? How many tools do you have in your toolbox? How many facilities have you used? How do you implement what you want to do in your head ideally to what you're actually looking at realistically? Right. If we all have 10,000 square foot weight rooms and one client per hour and all the time in the world to work with that man or woman, we could all be great strength coaches. Right. But now your first job is in a high school and you got two bent bars, a couple of mismatched dumbbells and some metal plyo boxes. What are you going to do? How are you going to maximize that program? Because you still owe it to those kids and those coaches to be the best strength coach you can be. Right. So I always tell young coaches, get as much experience as you can, intern on as many people as you can, read everything you can, and then start to develop your coaching philosophy or principles around that. And the last thing I have is what you do to yourself, what you, how you train yourself, right? Um, I think we have too many sport coaches in America that don't train at all and try to tell strength coaches how to do their job, right? If you don't squat, how do you tell another man or woman how to squat, right? I really, that's one thing I really have a beef with is you have these sport coaches that either lifted weights barely 
or were pretty good at it 20 years ago, trying to tell you how to implement a program and you're grinding every day, lifting, running, doing plyos and knowing how that feels internally, right? Um, unfortunately, because of the power dynamic in college sports, you can't normally tell those coaches what you really want to tell them, which is get the hell out of the weight room and come to your practice and disrupt what you're doing, right? But I think to some extent, you got to train yourself and try different things and put you speak in the same language as the athlete. I always say, the biggest thing I did is my development as a strength and conditioning coach that changed the game for me. In 2011, I ran a marathon, right? So after years of powerlifting, years of Olympic lifting, I decided I wanted to try to try my hand at the endurance sports, did a couple of 5Ks, did a half, then I did a full marathon. I've done a bunch since then, right? And all of a sudden, in four months of training for a marathon, I understood what our cross-country kids are going through day to day. I understood what our distance swimmers are going through day to day. And I feel like so many strength coaches don't connect with those kids because you're telling a kid to, to do you know, three sets of 10 heavy squats and he or she just ran 10 miles in the rain uphill. So I think, yeah, but I, I became a better coach when I experienced what they experienced. And I think so in my opinion, coaching is kind of a mixture of reading the research, reading the books, doing the academic side of things, experience training other people and other teams in different environments. And then the way you train yourself and make yourself better and then apply that to other people. I appreciate that advice and a lot of great perspective in there. Angelo, if any of our listeners want to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, you can find me. My, my best email to reach me at is angelo.gingerelli at gmail.com. Um, I'll answer any questions you have. So again, Angelo, dot gingerelli at gmail.com and then my we have an instagram for the book that i just published it's called at finish underscore strong book uh, myself and a professor of athletic training got together about a year ago and wrote a book for endurance athletes that want to implement strength training into their daily routine right so we're kind of coming at it from the perspective of with endurance athletes we're dealing with, with all of them too much fatigue and too little time how do we address those things and break down a periodized program and prepare for your big marathons, your big triathlons, your big open water swims and stay strong while you're doing it. I do feel that as great as our profession is, and I love being a part of it for as long as I have, we've really underserved that community. And I didn't really, really realize that until I jumped in it. Right. But the idea of like, there's so many people I was working out with that they would go run 20 miles, but be terrified of a squat rack. Right. Or they would go swim in a choppy ocean and be just terrified of a lap pull-down machine. And my thing is, we got to do a little of both. I think endurance and cardiovascular health is super important, right? But if we're going to be good at these events and be healthy and strong as we get older, we have to resistance train. So is there a way we can put them together and help people out? And then, you know, if you got that running bug, that swimming bug, whatever it is, can we extend your career, keep you strong and uninjured, and have a great career? Because I think, as, as a lot of the former athletes that will listen to the show, as you, you can't be a better basketball player at 40 than you were at 20, right? And we, you, know, you can be a good power lifter in your 30s. Olympic lifts, just the way our bodies mature, almost nobody's better at a cleaner snatch when they're 45 than when they were 25, right? But if you look at, if you want to stay competitive and keep getting after it and pushing yourself and say you stack up to others around you, those endurance sports physiologically, you can get better as you get older if you attack it the right way, right? So I think that's kind of, it, it scratches the competitive itch a lot of us have. Um, and it's just, it's, it's become a really big part of my life. And I want to try to help people implement what I'm doing in the weight room to what they're doing in their training. And, and, and the other thing is, I always say this to young strength coaches, in the college world, we are so bent on attacking men's basketball and football. because that's Those are sports everyone wants to work with, right? 
in the private sector, if you want to find a customer that's got time, dispensable income, disposable income, committed to their sport, and will buy a book, a training program, subscribe to an Instagram account, those endurance athlete men and women hit that across the board, right? Um, so I think that just in a market that's underserved and I'm trying to be a small piece of the puzzle, a serving that demographic and helping them get better and you know, use a cliche in the title of a book, finish stronger, but it's a thing that affected my life greatly. I want to help you know, get that message out to other people. Now, that's a great realization. You know, endurance sports, definitely an underrepresented area within strength and conditioning. Uh, you know, number of us, you know, here at the NSCA, we joke that the C and S and C is the most feared letter in the alphabet for a lot of coaches. And, uh, and it goes back to a lot of our athletic experiences. But I really like the message of diversifying your own athletic experience to gain perspective on what your athletes are going through. I think that's powerful. Angelo, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Eric. Uh, to our listeners, thanks for tuning in. And we'd also like to thank Soranex Exercise Equipment. We appreciate their support. I'm Coach Boyd Epley. I'm known as the founder of the NSCA. And you just listened to an episode of the NSCA Coaching Podcast. To learn more about all the NSA offers, check out nsa.com and join us at an upcoming event this year. I hope to see you there. This was the NSCA's Coaching Podcast. The National Strength and Conditioning Association was founded in 1978 by strength and conditioning coaches to share information, resources, and help advance the profession. Serving coaches for over 40 years, the NSCA is the trusted source for strength and conditioning professionals. Be sure to join us next time.